having a sermon series that we are calling uh, Visitation, uh, Visitation Encounters with God. And we are specifically working our way through the biblical story, looking at various uh, texts and various stories that where God meets his people for the very first time. And we started in the, the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And now we are working our way. Last week we were in uh, Exodus, and this week we're looking at the book of Joshua. And as we're looking through these uh, stories and these encounters, the goal that we have is we want to know what it means to meet God. We want to know what it means to know God, where we are living in life with him, in step with him. And so today we're looking at Joshua 5, verses uh, 13 through 15. It's a very short uh, passage, but it's a, it actually should uh, remind you of the text that we looked at last week in Exodus 3, uh, where Moses met God in the burning bush. And so let's just uh, dive into this. This is actually a very, very important text. And I'll just be honest, this uh, text has been doing a number on my own heart and my own life this past week. When, in fact, I've been struggling to figure out how to communicate and, and to tell you uh, the, the key idea in this text. And part of that is because God is saying, uh, I want you to follow me wholeheartedly. I want you to be all in as you follow me. And uh as we go through this text, that is what I want you to see. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. This is Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. It's in your worship guide and it's on the wall behind me. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went... To him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servants? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. So in Star Wars Episode 3, which is, by, in some people's minds, it's a great movie. In other people's minds, it's an awful movie. But in this, there's this one scene when Anakin Skywalker, who becomes Darth Vader, he's having the fight with his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And as they're fighting, Anakin yells, If you are not with me, then you are my enemy. And this phrase, it's a variation of the same phrase that we see here, that you're either with us or against us. It, it is a phrase that is used to call people to action. Gaston, in the movie Beauty and the Beast, he says to the villagers, uh, are you with me or against me? And he uses this phrase to rally the villagers to kill the beast. Senator Hillary Clinton, a few days after 9-11, announced that every nation has to, be, has to either be with us or against us. Those who harbor terrorists or those who finance them are going to pay a price. And then a few days later, President Bush said the following, Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. 
Are you for us or are you against us? And so while this question uh, really motivates you, motivates anyone to action, it also has the desired consequence of dividing people. It has the desired consequence of polarizing people. And Joshua is here. Uh, he's the general of, of Israel. He is about to lead Israel into the promised land, which God has promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and once again Joshua. Like So Joshua is about to take his people into into this promised land and go to war. And so he's by the first city that they're coming to, Jericho. He is devising a war plan in his his, his he's devising a strategy in his in his mind. And as he looks, he sees a man and he's not sure who this man is. It could be an Israelite, it could be a Canaanite. He's not sure who he is. And so he says, "Are you on my side or are you on their side? Are you for us or or against us?" And so this is, that's the question he asks, and he gets an answer. But what he doesn't realize is that the man who is there is God. This is another theophany, which is, uh, as we are looking at these encounters with God, very often they are theophanies where God is appearing to people. And this is God appearing to, to Joshua. And it's, like I said earlier, it is very similar to an encounter that God had with Moses in Exodus 3. We see the verbatim statement, take off your sandals for where you are standing is holy ground. But we see Joshua recognizing this man as God because he bows in worship. And he also says, what would you have me do? How can I serve you? So this is an encounter with God. And so as, as Joshua asks this question, first in ignorance, he gets his answer. And as he has his answer, he knows who he is talking to. And the answer is neither, for I am the commander of the Lord's army. And so I don't want to miss the humor there. Because that's actually, there's a lot of humor there. Um, and so a, a friend, this is how I, I want you to see the humor. A friend shared with me this week that he was having a conversation with his young child. And he said, hey, who's smarter, mommy or daddy? And his kid said, Jesus. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yes, Jesus is smarter than mommy or daddy. That is true. So here, are you for us or against us? And Neither. I'm on my own side. And so the, the point of this text, right there, I want you to see crystal clearly that the point of this text is not whether or not God is on our side or if God is on their side. The, ans- the question of this text is whether or not we are on Jesus' side. Let me reiterate that. The question of this text is, are we on Jesus' side? And that's the question I want us to explore today. Are you on Jesus' side? And this is a question that we must consider because for a lot of different reasons. But this is the first thing I want to start with is that this is a question we need to really consider because Christians, Christians uh, have very often co-opted God to serve their own agendas. Where we use God to serve us. And that can have dramatic and devastating consequences where that can, in fact, ruin the church's work in this world where we are meant to be proclaiming the gospel and serving others. It can actually, it really tarnishes what God sets us to do. And here's just one example of that. So Marcus Mumford, uh, you know of him uh, because he is the lead singer of the band Mumford & Sons. 
So Marcus is actually a pastor's kid, and he is... Uh, he grew up in Britain, and so he. This uh, quote I'm gonna get I'm, that he. This quote that I'm about to read. It's rather uh, descriptive of really, in fact, an entire generation of an entire millennial generation. And so, in this interview with Rolling Stones, he he was asked if he considers himself to be a Christian, and this is his reply. A quote: "I don't really like that word Christian." It comes with so much baggage. So no, I would not call myself a Christian. I think the word conjures up all these religious images that I do not really like. I have my own personal views about the person of Jesus and who he was. And I've kind of separated myself from the culture of Christianity. Mumford here clearly separates himself from the culture of Christianity. He distanced himself from the church, which he grew up in. And so... The, the one thing that he's pointing out, the reason why he wants to distance himself is because he sees that Christianity and the church has so much baggage. And in many ways, he knows what he's talking about because he grew up within the church. His dad and mother are both pastors in, in this large denomination in, in the United Kingdom. And so what I, he points out is that those who, need, who see the need to distance themselves from Christianity tend to do so because they see that there's so much baggage to it. And especially within our American context, it has to do with how Christians relate to, to politics. Now, perhaps some of you don't share this view and, and the, you don't have this uh, same experience. And Nicholas Kristof, who's a writer for the New York Times... Uh, would p- perhaps explain why. And so this is what Christoph said. Unfairly, hypocrites get the headlines and often shape public attitudes about religion. But there is more to the picture. The average religious American donates far more to charity and volunteers more than their secular counterparts do. And so Christoph's point right there is very clear, is that the negative press that Christians get is due to hypocrites, people who don't live up to the teachings of Jesus. There are far more uh, Christians who are out serving their communities and seeking the peace and the welfare of their city than are ever really noticed because they're serving in quiet ways. And so while this is true, while both of these statements are true, that there are, is baggage to Christianity, there's baggage, that the church has baggage, that is true, and, the Nick, and Christoph's point is also true. While these things are both true, here's the, the, the reality for our own hearts, for our own selves, and it's this, is that we use God to serve our own agendas, we serve God to use our own agendas. And here's one way this can happen. And, and perhaps you've said this. Perhaps it's been said to you. Perhaps, um, and I'll be honest, pastors say these type of things a lot. And it can be, in fact, very manipulative. And this is the statement. The Lord told me to tell you this. Blank. Or I believe the Lord wants you to blank. Those type of statements are how we can use God to get people to do things that we want them to do. It is, it is manipulative, and it's really where, where we use God to serve our own agendas. And it's so it could be something as subtle and personal and, and private as, those, as that, or it can be something much more public and devastating to our communities. And here's an example of how it can be devastating to our communities. 
Now, during the 1960s, there was a growing fear that the government was encroaching on, uh, on private lives and, and the various individual rights. And simultaneously, there was a civil rights movement that occurred. And many Christians marched alongside, their black, alongside black people. Others did not and silently watched by, uh, watched as these things were going on. But others use scripture to justify segregation and resist integration. And after the, the uh, Supreme Court case, Brown versus the Board of Education passed, in the South, uh, Christian schools exploded in growth. In other words, I want to be clear there, that one reason for private Christian education in the South was to resist integration. And that is using scripture to, as using God to serve our own agenda. So we can actually use God to manipulate people to our own interests and to our own ends, but we can also use God to keep our lives safe, comfortable, and, and exactly how he wants, where we can keep some people out of our lives so we can avoid serving them. But here's a problem. Here's the real problem with that, and that this text directly speaks to. The problem with that is that God is holy, Last week, I, I, I spoke about I, I, the text in Exodus, so I clearly spoke about holiness. And like, so we looked at the fact that God is holy. And holiness means perfection and moral purity. And God is perfect. And so we, God, as God is holiness, as God is holy, his holiness serves as a mirror which should terrify us. His holiness reveals our sinfulness and our selfishness. It's that God's holiness demands that we own our sin, that we need to acknowledge this, that we need to be vulnerable and say to him, I am a sinner. And to quote a friend of mine, Travis Scott, who's a pastor in Pittsburgh, he said this, it's only then when we deal with God's holiness, it's only then that we can receive the holy love of God. It's only then that we can receive the holy grace and holy purification from Jesus that we are able to see that how having his holiness creates a better future and opens our world and experience by making us more like Jesus. The most powerful proof of God's love for this world is when men and women are shaped by God's holiness to the point that we give ourselves over to his love for this world. And so as a church, Ironworks Church strives to be that kind of church where we each, are, as individuals, have dealt with God's holiness but, and where we, as a whole family, have been shaped by his holiness. So we want to be known for the name of God. We want to be known that as a church that is on Jesus' side, not for any specific politics or issues or education methods or parenting style or anything else aside from the name and fame of God. And that is going to mean that we, get, we dive into all of life because Jesus is king over all of life as well. And so when we follow the way of Jesus for the good of Westchester, we mean this absolutely. We mean this totally. We mean this unapologetically because Jesus was a good teacher, but he was far more than that. Jesus is the son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. But, and he, but in that phrase where he's the son of God, he is God, the son. 
And so as he took away the sin of the world, he defeated death, he defeated sin, he defeated evil for us to have life with him. And he now reigns over all things as king. He is the one true king who is making us into a new people. But going back to these words in our text, are you for us or against us? Jesus actually said these words himself in Matthew 12, verse 30. He says that he is not with me, is against me. Now Jesus, with this statement, he does not allow anybody to remain neutral. You cannot sit on the sidelines. That every man and woman and child must reckon with the claims of Jesus upon our own lives. This one theologian, Justo Gonzalez, he put it this way. And this is actually a, a quote for reflection in your worship guide today. And he, he says, when the early Christians declared, I believe in Jesus Christ our Lord, they were not making an innocuous statement, nor are we. We are saying that our ultimate commitment is not to family, not to nation, not to church, but to him. We are rejecting any absolute nationalism. We are rejecting any unconditional allegiance. Otherwise, he is not truly our Lord, but one among many lords. Now, at face value, I think looking at this, this could create an us versus them mentality. But that is only the case if you don't consider what Jesus' mission in this world is. One of the most popular verses in the, in the world that's most well known is John 3.16, where, uh, where we're told that for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have life. I want to look and think about that for a moment because Jesus came to love the world by living according to God's law. He lived, his life mattered. Jesus came to die upon the cross where his death matters. And Jesus defeated sin, death, and evil through his resurrection. And his, his resurrection matters so that anyone who looks to, to Jesus and calls upon his name has abundant life. That is the promise that we're given here. And so, but just think about the first phrase of that verse, for God so loved the world. And I want to point this out, that if you're going to be for Jesus, then you're going to be for the world. To be on Jesus' side, to be for Jesus, is to be for the life of the world. And this is a language, as, as I'm using this, this is language of devotion here. But what does it mean to be devoted to him? And like this, is a, a quite, this was actually one question that Jesus asked uh, one young man. He said, what is the, the, how would you summarize the law of God? And he said to uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Again, that's devotional language, to love God with everything you have. And the second uh, summary commandment is that you love your neighbor as yourself. Again, that's, that's language of devotion where you love people. The, so the, the, these commandments are pictures of devotion. And recently I officiated a wedding and where the bride and groom um, took vows to one another. And one of their vows said this, All I have I offer you. In other words, what they're doing then and there is that they're devoting themselves to one another. And this is a picture of what devotion is, where we say to Jesus that everything I have is yours, that my love is yours. That is what Jesus demands 
from us. Jesus demands that we give him everything we have. But here's the sad reality. Here's the, the bad news. We can't do that. We cannot do this. We're, we are a selfish people. We are a sinful people. I'm reminded of this on, on pretty much a daily basis. But here's one way that I'm reminded about this pretty frequently. And, and this is it. I try to get out of changing diapers. I really try. And my wife calls me out on it. Like, that's a picture. That's a picture of a selfish heart where I am not serving Jennifer. I, it's the truth. Now, that is, that is just one example of many in my own life. And, and if we're honest, you would identify with that. Because the fact is, we do not want to give ourselves to other people when it's not on our terms. We do not want to give ourselves to God when it's not our, on our terms. And that's bad news. Yet, because of that bad news is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus came to live for us. He came to die for us. And there is something else in our text to, no, to notice here. As the commander of the Lord, the commander is there, of the Lord's army is there, like before that in verse 13, uh, a man was standing before him with his a drawn sword in his hand. And I want to think about that for just a second. Because here's this man holding a sword, and all throughout Scripture, when, a man, when an angel is holding, holding a sword, or Jesus is holding a sword, whenever that's going on, that is a, a picture of God as our warrior, that Jesus is going to, that God is going to war for us. And that's something that, that's good news. And here's why. This is what Paul wrote in Colossians 2.13. You who were dead in your sins, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is one, one verse that gets at how Jesus came to for us, how Jesus came and went to war for us. But Jesus didn't come uh, to war for us, didn't come and go to war by killing people. Jesus came, went to war by being killed for us. That's what Jesus did for us. Everything that Jesus did was out of a love for you. He fought when you couldn't. He died the death that should have really been yours. And he defeated our greatest enemy so that we could have life with him. As Paul puts it, we were dead in our sins, yet we are now alive. God has made us alive because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus gave everything, everything so that you could have life with him. And he's the one we follow. Jesus gave everything. Jesus, instead of, like I said, instead of killing, Jesus died. And he is the one we follow for as well. And it's said that on uh, Gautama Buddha, one of the uh, founders of one of the largest world religions, it's, it's said that on his deathbed, his last words were, never stop striving. In other words, it's never finished. So keep working hard of it. Or keep working at it. And these words are actually the complete opposite of Jesus' last words, where he is upon the cross, and he cries out with his, his final breath, it is finished. In other words, Jesus, Jesus did it all for us. Jesus paid the price for us. Jesus died for us. And we can actually just rest in that 
reality, that we can look to him and rest in that promise. So perhaps you're here today and you're completely undecided about Christianity. I'd like you to ask one question. Would the one that you follow ever die for the sins of the world? Would the, the one that you follow ever uh, die so that you could have life with God? That describes Jesus. Jesus did. And if we are going to be for him, then that is the life that we pursue because it's only through him that anyone can have life with God. So if, if you're going to be for Jesus, this means we, you need to look to him and him alone as your king in all of life because he is the one who is the king of all things and he has ensured your own salvation and life with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the work that Jesus did for us and Lord, we thank you for your love. And Lord, as we ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts in, our, in the coming days, that as we think about our lives, as we think about uh, decisions we make, as we think about choices, and, uh, and just as we think about our entire lives, Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us those instances when we say in our lives that uh, are you for us or are you against us, where we create this uh, us versus them dichotomy in our lives. Lord, show us where all the ways that we seek to use you to serve our own agendas. And Lord, we ask that as you show us and as you uh, reveal our sin to us in these ways, we ask that you, above all, would show us how your son uh, makes us right with you, how he even went to war so that we could be right with you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So uh, now at this time, if you have kids uh, next door and kids